Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and stewardship of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, and I'll be your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode, and don't forget to rate and review our podcast. The Cumberland River Basin is vast, over 18,000 square miles of land in both Tennessee and Kentucky, ultimately drained to the Cumberland River. The watershed includes highly urbanized areas like Nashville, growing areas like Clarksville and Cookville, and acres of open lands and rural landscapes. When we think about water quality issues, we're ultimately thinking about what is happening on the land. The Cumberland River Compact works to address these root causes of water quality. We identify the specific sources of impairments in different communities and take action. The headwaters of the Cumberland River, its beginning, are tucked into the steep hills and valleys of Appalachia in Kentucky. This region is filled with what we call working lands, or lands that support the livelihoods of the community, either currently, like agricultural and ranch lands, or in the past, like mine lands. Depending on the timeline of the mining practice, the land includes varying levels of restoration, from gravelly grasslands to basic tree plantings. But environmental threats continue, and these lands are often identified as root causes of water quality issues. Appalachia is also bursting with biodiversity, including globally significant levels of freshwater biodiversity in the streams and rivers. Much of this life is also threatened or endangered. Take, for example, the Cumberland darter, a small endangered fish found in these waters. The Cumberland darter is threatened by sedimentation from coal mining, logging, agriculture, and development within the upper Cumberland basin that ultimately negatively affect the Cumberland darter by reducing growth rates, disease tolerance, and gill function, reducing spawning habitat, reproductive success, and egg and larval and juvenile development, even modifying migration patterns, reducing food availability, and reducing foraging efficiency. Contaminants also associated with coal mining can cause the degradation of water quality and habitats through increased acidity and conductivity. By addressing formerly mined lands in Appalachia, we can address the root cause of these issues that impact water quality and biodiversity. The Cumberland River Compact is beginning work on restoring abandoned and legacy mine lands in this region through a partnership with the Appalachia Regional Reforestation Initiative. We will work to restore forests on privately owned coal mine land in the Cumberland River Basin. In this River Talk, you will hear from Cliff Drouet, a forester with the Office of Surface Mining, as he shares about the reforestation efforts in this region that support Appalachian environments and economies. This River Talk is recorded audio from a presentation and conversation at the Tennessee State Museum as part of their Painting the Smokies Lunch and Learn series. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Cliff Drouet. I'm a forester with the Office of Surface Mining, <clears throat> which is a very small agency under the Department of Interior. In fact, we're the smallest agency in the entire federal government. Um, we have about 400 employees. That's coast to coast. 
Um, majority of those are admin people. Um, the rest of them um, are hydrologists, geologists, and mine inspectors. And there's two foresters in the entire agency. I'm one of them. So that's who you stuck with. So um, I'm based out of Lexington, Kentucky, but I cover um, Eastern Ohio, coal country, Southwest Virginia, East and West Kentucky, and East Tennessee. So, you know, I'm a forester, so I'm gonna be very biased about trees, so let's just get that on the table first. With climate change and environmental, um, global warming and all that. So when, when somebody says, well, you know, we gotta find a way to, to slow that down, I already got the answer. It's planting trees, and it works. So our whole thing is we plant trees on these formerly mined um, lands, which are now, most of them are non-productive. And I call them moonscapes because if you ever fly over them or just look at a Google Earth, they look like barren red splotches on the, on the landscape. So we're trying to convert those back to native forest and wildlife habitat. In Appalachia, the forests are typically 75 to 80% roughly hardwood and the balance of that would be um, your conifers your pines so what we do is we mimic what mom nature has growing around each mine site we don't you know it's nothing we don't rubber stamp the same thing on every on every site every state is different and every county is different and even opposite ends of the county like if it borders the Cumberland River uh, or some other river the Rock Castle River let's say then that, that type of soil or that type of plants are gonna be a little bit different than they would be in say McMahon County, um, uh, Tennessee. With, with planting trees, we're establishing a new soil layer on this mine site with the, with the uh, composing uh, leaves and twigs and all that kind of stuff. And all of that, as, it, as water, rainwater and surface water perks through that, it, it becomes clean. Economic opportunity or economic development, that's another big thing. What we're trying to do is bring economic development to these depressed counties throughout Appalachia. It's pretty sad when you drive through a county seat downtown and you see 75% of the businesses boarded up. You know, that, and that's in the county seat. You know, the smaller counties out, out in the hinterland, if you will, they're, they're even, you know, they're even kind of worse. So we're trying to bring, and the way we do that is we hire local. Long story short, I was a procurement forester. I'm kind of new to this government game. I was a procurement forester for 11 years buying timber. And I got the itch and I went out on my own. So I was a consulting forester for about 25 years. But I was also in the reserves and I did four combat tours. And when you have to shut your business down four times or the equivalent of about eight years, well, it gets a little tough. So I threw my hat in the ring and I got hired by NRCS in Kentucky to be their state forester. I did that for about a year or a little shy of a year and they wanted me to sit in my cubicle and that's not in my DNA. So I knew about um, coal mine and reforestation because when I first went on into business for myself in North Alabama, my first three clients were coal companies and their, their mission to me was find a better way to restore these mine sites than just planting grass. This is not working. We got erosion, we got mine inspectors crawling on us, 
help us. So I called Auburn and Alabama Forestry Commission. I said, what can I do? They said, plant trees, we'll send a crew up there and we'll help you. So in 1991, I started and I'm still doing it. So 31 years later, I'm still planting trees on moonscapes. And it's, and it's great, I love it. Forestry is farming on steroids. We use, we use bigger equipment and our seeds are bigger than corn and rice and the other, the other things. We hand plant all our trees. We use bare root seedlings. So we, you know, every tree has been personally put in that ground. There's no machine planting, no dropping it from an air, from a drone, from a helicopter, none of that. We plant them hand plant. A mine site, if you can imagine, it's like trying to plant a tree out here in this parking lot. It's packed so hard after being run over by a million times by heavy equipment that nothing can grow. If you try to plant, first of all, you couldn't get a dibble bar in there. If you were able to get it a few inches, the tree's either going to die or it's going to be a little bonsai for the rest of its life. So that's to me is a waste of money and time. So we use heavy equipment. This dozer, he's coming back after the ground has been ripped to further kind of bust up that compacted or that hard pan. And, and the cool thing about that, there's not much vegetation competition growing around it in that first year. Now, that second and third year, everything could cut loose and break loose and you could have an explosion of grass, kudzu, privet, uh, mimosa trees, you name it, it could, it could grow. But that's a very clean, healthy tree. So in about 2002 to 2004, the Virginia, um, Virginia Tech Forestry School, they were contacted by OSM, my agency, and they said, look, we gotta come up with some better plan than just planting grass. This sowing grass, invasive grass at that, on mine sites, it, it grows, but it doesn't stop sheet erosion. We got gullies deep enough that grown adults can hide in, uh, standing up it's not working. And we got point source pollution running down into our creeks. And oh, by the way, the Corps of Engineers is getting a little excited about that. And so we gotta come up with something different. So that professor working with University of Kentucky, University of West Virginia, a, co a cooperative, they came up with the forestry reclamation approach. Five easy steps. Create a suitable rooting me medium, non-compact, you know, bust up that hard pan, use ground covers that are compatible with growing trees. That's wildlife. That'd be ground cover like your clovers, your red and white clovers, certain wildflowers. Um, you want something that has deep roots and it dies back every year with a frost so that it starts decomposing. And that's what you want, that early soil building. Use proper tree plant on plant, plant not only successional, early successional trees, but also late successional trees, which means your early successional trees, an example of that would be your sweet gums, your yellow poplars, your Virginia pines, trees that, that pop up like in a pasture that hadn't been bush hogged in a couple of years, and all of a sudden you go out there and you go, wow, where'd all those trees come from? Those, that's an example of early successional. Your later successional or commercial trees are the slow growers, and that would be your red oaks, your white oaks, your hickories, those, those type bigger trees that are, gonna, that are gonna eventually dominate the forest. So we plant our trees on eight foot by eight foot spacing because that's the way the dozer rips. That gives you right at uh, 680 trees per acre. 
round it up to 700 trees for easy field math, and that tells you what we've got. A lot of people think, well, that, that you're planting too many trees. No, because we, we, we always plan on, on mom nature or the critters eating, getting 200 of them, okay? And that can be from deer browse, that can be from moles, voles, locusts, underground that you don't know, or now in East Kentucky, we have the uh, elk restocking program, which are huge animals. And now we also have wild horses. People drive out on a mine site, they open their horse trailer, they run their horses out of the trailer, and poof, they're gone. Just like, you know, when I was growing up, that's where people dropped off their puppies and kittens at, on a log job or at the, at the dump. And then you, in one generation, you got wild dogs and cats. Same thing with horses. And I tell you what, they can wreak havoc on our trees because they walk out there and they see a 40-acre planted area and to them, that's the buffet bar for all those young little leaves that are there and the stems. And they'll literally eat them right down into the dirt. So we plant 700 trees per acre, roughly. We, we figure 200 trees given to God's little critters, and we got 500, which is still a good, a good survivability number. After Cliff's introduction, we sat down together to talk in more detail. We're, now that we kind of had a little bit of an introduction, we're going to chat a little bit more. Um, okay. So Cliff, thank you for giving that detail and talking about kind of what those landscapes look like. There's about, you know, for, for people for context about like how much of the landscape looks like this, there's about 750,000 acres of mine land in Appalachia. So when we think about sort of like the current environmental issues in this region and future, there's a lot of land that is, that is in this situation. You kind of set the scene of calling them moonscapes. And so I think that that is, you know, people probably drive by these sites and don't realize that what they're seeing is actually a mined land because sometimes you can't see it. It's tucked behind some other trees or sometimes it just sort of looks like an open field. So that, that terminology of a moonscape, we hear a lot in sort of describing these areas. And so what does it look like, you know, if we think about a moonscape, what does it look like after we have this reforestation process? What is sort of that end goal of what we expect that landscape to look like and feel like? Well, the end goal is gonna be a forest. And so in your, like I was telling you, in the first few years, you, the grass and, and the seeds that were in that soil, and the, and the thing about it is a mine site, you don't know where the soil came from, you don't know what's in it. It's, it's, a, it's rock, it's subsoil, it's spoil, it's this much topsoil, and it's just a, a total mis mismatch of, of soil. So if you were to do a, anyway, long story short, if you do a, a soil test, you might have hot acid soil here, low acid soil here. Back in the back of the room, you may have a, 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 a neutral seven. So you have to, you have to kind of take, you have to look at what the rock that's there, maybe find out where it came from. That's how you determine what species you're gonna plant. Those that, are, that can grow in an in a acid-based soil until they drop enough leaves to convert that by building a new soil layer with compost. So in your first three to five years, you're gonna, you're, it's gonna look like a mess. It's gonna be, you're gonna think, oh, this, we need to just bush hog this and start over. But that, that is your young forest and I kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a different forester because I kind of like the, 
the, the grass and all that to grow up and briars and blackberries and all that because that kind of camouflages the trees from our deer and I want that. And I mentioned wildlife habitat. What we typically do is we try to plant the wildlife habitat species, your plum, your persimmons, um, old, uh, black cherry, just to name a few. We try to plant those on the outside so it keeps, so it attracts them to the outside so they don't come, they don't come much into the inside where the trees are. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned the planting the different types of species, and I've heard before a lot of times on these landscapes, you know, there is a little bit of, of that restoration, like you said, usually that grassy, but they can go through sort of um, arrested succession. So when you think about ecological succession, you kind of have these things that can get in there early when you've got a landscape, they can grow up and you've got other species, other species, and hopefully you can get to that great forest. But in a lot of these mine lands, they sort of have arrested succession where they get to a point and there's just not much else you can do naturally. There has to be that intervention to come in and make it that native no, that's, forest. That's true. And we, of course, when we, when the, and we do the, when we do the volunteer tree plantings, let's just pick a, let's say we got 40 acres. All right, so we take a little two acre little corner and that's our volunteer for the schools, um, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, that, that's our outreach. That's so the public knows what are we doing? Mm -hmm. you know, they don't know. All right, so they plant that and you hope to goodness that grandparents, teachers, that kind of thing, that those trees actually went in a hole and they didn't just stick it under the rock, yeah. all right? And so you do that on Friday and Saturday. Then on Monday, the professional tree planters show up and they plant the rest of the 38 acres and they come back and check that two <laughs> acres to make sure it's planted right. And you mix that, those trees up. You're not planting one row of cottonwood, one row of sycamore, one row of eastern white pine. You're not doing that. Or one row of white oak. You mix them all up so it's a native thing. And what we're trying to do is help mom nature jumpstart about 60 to 70 years ahead otherwise if you're going to sit there and do nothing plant grass or go out there and plant a few black locusts and you're going to say okay you know the oak trees are coming it could be 80 years before the oak trees show up and actually start growing because an, an acorn doesn't just doesn't just drop out of the sky it will if it's right underneath a tree but an acorn has to be delivered either by critters or by water you talked about the public and sort of the perceptions of these areas and obviously these landscapes are across a lot of different communities like you talked about and in the painting the Smokies exhibit and kind of what we've been talking about a lot within this series is sort of that connection between people and the land and that that, that connection is really strong for people in Appalachia so talk about how sort of coming in and doing this um, reforestation in in communities where coal mining might have been the main economic driver for decades what does that look like now how does that work within the community oh it it's it's working well because coal was was king up here and as coal has dropped forestry is stepping up and that's that's the key um, you know when I went to forestry school in Louisiana I went to Louisiana Tech which is in North Louisiana and you know, growing up, I always knew that the Southeast was, it's called the wood basket of the world. And it's, it's called that because that's exactly what it is. I see Appalachia as, as being the, the, the extension of, of the wood basket of the world. It's about to leave, you know, Tennessee, Virginia, uh, Kentucky, that's kind of the Northern edge of that, 
of that wood basket of the world. But now I see, and, and to go on your thing about 700, I think the latest estimates are with um, both abandoned mine lands and, and mine lands that <clears throat> were reclaimed partially, not very well. That's, that's right at about a million acres in Appalachia. So we've got you know, a lot of room to grow and be successful. And I see forestry as being not only an economic driver, uh, not just for equipment operators to come do this and tree planting, although that's what it is, uh, and the nurseries for growing the trees, but it's also a long term. So you, you've got a lot of employment at the front end, the start end, where I am, and then you've got maintenance along the way. And I'd see forestry as stepping up as a, as a regaining its, its status in, in Appalachia as an industry. And also um, uh, environmental or recreational tourism, mm -hmm. okay? Now, West Virginia is, has, I guess, kind of stepped up and capitalized on that, but East Tennessee has been doing that for a long time with hiking and rafting and that type of thing, camping, backpacking. And, but now it's, it's continuing up. And if, when you have the forest and you have trails for hiking, biking, horseback riding, that type of thing, bird watching, um, something for everybody, people will come. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of it's on private land. Those, those situations will have to be worked out for liability. Um, but on public land, and timber company lands, I, I see, I see uh, a, a good agreement there. Mm -hmm. And we had actually a whole panel t conversation around tourism in Appalachia and oh. sort of the, you know, that idea of building up those local economies. And as like you're saying, the sure. kind of previous economies are changing and how forestry can come in and things like that. Um, I know that you all, you know, and, and, and with these initiatives, try to hire local folks, you know, you do. to do the work. Can you talk about, is there anybody in particular who you've kind of seen come from maybe um, like a coal industry position into the forestry? Are there any sort of examples of folks that have really made that transition and how that happened? Yes. Um, we have a lot of high school students that, that come and do their environmental science, earth science. They'll do a, a you know, a, a project, a class trip and do one. And, and I'm, always, I'm always willing to talk to somebody if they want to go into forestry. Um, but when they come up and go, you know, I was, what's this like? And I, I'm, I'm honest, I'm blunt with them. I said, well, it's, you're, gonna, if you, you're gonna study a lot of science and a lot of math, so just be prepared. <laughs> and, and you're gonna work outdoors when it's hot, cold, dusty, muddy, it's, it's miserable, just be prepared. And bugs and snakes, all right? And you're gonna start out not earning a big salary, so just be prepared. But if you liked all that, then the world, the door is open. And, and there are a lot of people that, uh, males and females that are, that are now going into forestry. In fact, I've, I've done several of these and I met a couple of young ladies in East Kentucky. Um, they, were, they were high schoolers at the time. And I went and did a presentation at the University of Kentucky Forestry School Oh, a couple of years later, and lo and behold, they're sitting in the audience. <laughs> and they said, hey, Cliff, how you doing? You remember us? And I said, I'll be darned, here you yeah. are. And uh, so they ought to be, if they haven't, if they didn't graduate in May, they should be seniors this yeah. year. And that's great. And um, 
The Boy Scouts have forestry merit badge, which I'm a product of, and that's what steered me to forestry was, as a career, was taking forestry merit badge and meeting with the, with the parish forester in Louisiana. And I guess the cool thing for me was he drove a pickup truck. He got paid to do it. And I helped him with a, with a, a small prescribed burn. And I thought, he's getting paid to set the woods on fire. This is, <laughs> this is me. This is me. Look out. Here I come. So here I am. And, uh, but no, we have a lot of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that come. And they are interested not always in forestry, Catherine, but it can be wildlife biology, geology, you know, uh, soil scientists, and, and they're interested in that. Something just makes that click, and they go, wow, this is for me. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting, too, with these careers, because a lot of young people, I think, are also starting to want to know what they're doing is making a difference in the world, and this is such a good example of being able to make that difference, but also being close to home. So they might be able to be close at home making a difference in their own community, restoring a landscape that they know well, that they know where it is. And I think um, that's going to probably drive more people into forestry for those types of reasons, too. And going back to those two female forestry students, they were both from a small high school near Hazard, Kentucky. All right, well, they're in the middle of mining country. Mm -hmm. And they're their family, you know, they knew their grandfather mined, their uncles, you know, they knew everybody that mined in their family. And so now here they are years later, probably a hundred years later, uh, coming back and planting trees on those old mine sites. And like you just said, they're right there in their home or not far from it. So if they go to work for either Kentucky Division of Forestry, NRCS, Oh, any anybody, Nature Conservancy or a timber company, they can go to work and, and work and live right there in, in, in the area where they grew up. And they are making a difference. Yeah, I think having that, that local buy-in, like they live in this community and they want it to be restored. It's not just, you know, the outside environmentalists coming in and saying we need to, to do something, but having that sort of commitment from the local community. Higher local. Yep, yeah, yeah. Higher local. Higher local too, exactly. Yeah. Now, you mentioned kind of the Hazard, Kentucky area and the, the headwaters of the Cumberland River. And obviously, in eastern Kentucky, there was just a lot of really devastating flooding just a couple months ago. And so, you know, thinking about environmental concerns, sort of future, current and future in the, in the Appalachian region, things like flooding also come into play. Um, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, these landscapes, they're very sloped. They're kind of these narrow areas. So you can get situations where you have a lot of water kind of flowing into an area quickly. So how, how does um, kind of these landscapes, um, you know, uh, coincide with other environmental threats in the region like, like flooding? Good, good topic. I, and I'm, we were going to have several tours during the summer, early yep. summer, and the flooding, of course, no way. Um, but I went back in August and met with a group of folks to go show them a mine site. And driving those roads um, where, the, where the, a little creek, no wider than this row of chairs right here, it went literally, it filled up the entire valley. And it went from, you know, there's a sheer rock wall here and then the edge of the creek and then the edge of the creek here. And then a little bitty, as, as many of you know, if you've driven on, in East, East Tennessee, in, in the mountains, that, those roads aren't very, they're about this wide. And okay, so just 
So the river was six feet over the road. So it was literally from rock bluff to rock bluff or slope to slope. And of course, when the waters receded, culverts are gone, bridges are gone, the roads have been scoured out. Um, some of them are one lane. So, and, and FEMA has a, a task force in Hazard, Kentucky at this moment. And they are still doing the assessment, both human, you know, they're still looking for bodies, um, unfortunately, homes that have been destroyed, uh, crops that have been destroyed, and they're looking at mine sites to see, okay, did this cause this, this landslide on the side of this road? They're doing all of that. OSM has a couple of reps there, and we're working with them because we're telling FEMA and the Corps of Engineers, and I know about Corps of Engineers. I was an engineer soldier for 33 years, and I know how that process works. And the Corps is, and I've finally cracked the code to get to the, some of the higher ups to tell them about this and their mouths open and go, we didn't even know about this. This is awesome. And, <clears throat> but anyway, we're telling them, look, if you can get access up here on this private land, most of it is private land, old mine sites, sowed in grass, all right, well, that didn't hold. The settling ponds, the dams didn't hold and they blew. And that's probably what caused that sheet erosion into that settling pond the, the dam was, was saturated, it, the forces of nature it couldn't hold, it blew, and it went downstream, or it went off the edge and took off a chunk of the mountain with it. So all that to say, our ripping stops that. So if you cross-rip something, just think about it, on a slope, if you've cross-ripped, the waters can only run from one furrow to the next, which is eight feet. Well, that's not enough to even wiggle a leaf. And it, and it goes into the rip. So after we do the ripping, solar sheet erosion is about stopped. We've mitigated that. And then you plant the trees, and as they start to grow and drop the leaves, the whole landscape just changed. The roots are stabilizing the soil. We're doing it naturally. We don't have to drive steel beams into the ground and put um, uh, retaining walls up. The trees are our retaining walls, and they're going to continue to grow and get bigger and better and drop more stuff on the ground, which is decomposing soil layer. So we've explained that to them. And, and we are really, we are very optimistic that FEMA and Corps of Engineers with, with us, with the ARI program, we're gonna sit down and come up with some real solutions and we're gonna start doing it right there in, in East Kentucky where the flood damage was bad. What better demo than to do it right there on the devastated site? So, and I hope that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, yeah, just the fact that those landscapes, like that soil, like you're saying, is so compacted, then that water hits. It's like hitting pavement, just like you were saying, as if you were trying to. Oh, it just rushes. Yeah, so it's There's not going to do what we want it to do, which is soak it in and have all of that kind of stuff. Now, when, when you have these forests on these landscapes, you've mentioned like forestry kind of as an economic driver in the region into the future as well. Do these landscapes have to, um, continue to be a forest? Can they be used as timber? Like what happens sort of as we get 20, 30 years down the line with these forests? Well, <clears throat> the 30 or 40 year timeline is really, in a, in a hardwood forest is pretty short. Mm -hmm. All right, so you plant the trees and in about 20 years, you're probably gonna need to do a thinning because the, the crowns have closed and everything's gonna start to slow down. There's no sunlight on the floor. So that means those acorns and seeds aren't getting the sunlight to sprout. So you gotta do a thinning and open it up. 
that also opens up for a whole lot of wildlife habitat and browse to, to explode and grow. So in 30 or 40 years, you've got, you've got a forest that not only is wildlife habitat, clean water, clean air, recreation, but it's also a timber crop for whoever owns that land, whether it be the state, it could be a wildlife management area, which in East Tennessee, that's what a lot of those old mine sites have become. They went into bankruptcy court, the state of Tennessee stepped up and said, we'll take it, we're gonna work with OSM, they're gonna, they're gonna do the abandoned mine land program, they're gonna restore it, and we're gonna make it a public uh, wildlife management area for multiple use, and that's what they've done. And the Forest Service has done the same thing. The national parks do the same thing. So, and then of course, private landowners as well, and timber companies. Now, many of you may know that the Nature Conservancy has their Cumberland, oh, Cumberland Gap project. And it's, it's 230,000 acres that they have bought, abandoned mine lands, in east, eastern Kentucky, eastern Tennessee, and that corner, southwest corner of, of Virginia, where those three come together in that little part of the world, that's the, the Cumberland Gap project. And they are slowly uh, doing it in phases, but they are working with us to restore those mine sites back. And they're also doing some other innovative things. Um, they're looking at solar panels. They're looking at, um, Oh, growing, um, oh heck, not just, well, they were looking at doing a vineyard. I think that <laughs> with last year's freeze, that kind of went out the window and then drought and then flood, that wasn't. So now they're looking at, at different fruit orchards that can be used not only for human consumption, but all the spoil will be wildlife. So it, again, multiple use. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, I think this conversation in context of the Painting the Smokies exhibit, I think is really interesting to kind of be in that space and see the landscapes that, you know, people painted in, in that smoky region and think about sort of what they saw as the future of that region and what it looks like now and, and, and what it could be into the future. And I love this, this, you know, thinking about those young women who are becoming foresters and their families were, have been in this area. So, you know, you look at those paintings, you see those people that have been painted and, you know, what do they look like and what are they doing today? They're just a small piece of the pie. You've got, yep. you've got folks, you know, my thing is I try to put uh, unemployed minors and veterans to work and the Small Business Administration in, in the states and now the feds, they're pushing that along with Department of Labor to try to bring, you know, they're trying to come up with, what can we do? Well, we already got the solution. We've already got it packaged up for you. And the third category of people, I've, I've talked with, with district attorneys, uh, judges, and sheriffs, and we're looking at, at, at uh, trustees that not violent offenders, but to get them, for one, get them out of the, out of the cage and try to teach them a skill. So if you can't drive a dozer, if you you know um, can't operate a dozer, then then we're going to try to uh, train you on how to maintain a dozer. Yeah. Be a mechanic. If not, that double bar fits everybody's hands. <laughs> you can be a, a laborer, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. I planted I planted trees since I was about 15 years old, so that, there's nothing. I don't I don't look ashamed at all. Yeah. But that would be the third population group. Is we're trying to trying to bring. Um, 
parolees, I call them, or inmates currently, currently in jail, try to teach them a skill so when they do come out, they've got something and they don't go right back to, to the bad things that they were doing. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. So there's a lot there of- is. There yeah. is. Thank you to Cliff Drouet for presenting with us on reforestation in the Cumberland River Basin. Thank you also to our partners at the Tennessee State Museum for hosting the talk. If you'd like to learn more about what was mentioned in this episode, please visit us at cumberlandrivercompact.org blog.